1: Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, and I'm Simon Long, the international editor here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show... With big business under fire around the world, the
2: economist Tyler Cowan comes to its defence. Sometimes big business is more honest. Go to Match.com, the dating site. Who is more likely to lie to you, the company, Match, or the people filling out the profiles?
3: And is it time we all read the fine print... If economics is to work, it should mean that competition works and the best product is sold to the most people. But the amount of legalese and small print means that doesn't necessarily happen.
1: But first, last year saw the start of a slowdown across the Eurozone. It was driven in particular by downturns in trade and manufacturing in two of the currency union's biggest economies, Germany and Italy but things could have been much worse had other countries and industries not proved resilient. Across the Eurozone, it's the more domestic-facing service industries that have come to the rescue. To discuss these bright spots of Europe, I'm joined by Rachana Shambhog, our European economics correspondent and sometime occupant of this chair. Hello, Rachana. Hi, Simon. Looking at the big economies, so Germany and Italy have been doing badly. Does that mean that France and Spain have been doing well?
4: That's right. So we're Especially in Spain, we're seeing strength offsetting the weakness in in Germany and in Italy. Together, the big four economies make up about three quarters of the eurozone's GDP. Spain by itself makes up a tenth, but it's been growing so quickly that it's been punching above its weight. We're seeing that both in terms of GDP as well as in employment growth. And a lot of that is Spain recovering from a very deep crisis in 2012.
1: And France too, which is a bit of a surprise, I suppose, if if you follow the news and all you see is Gilles Jeune protesting about how bad things are.
4: That's right. But the worst of the protests were towards the end of last year. And since then, we've seen business confidence starting to recover. France, unusually for the big Eurozone countries has seen both an improvement in survey indicators and also a very high level of survey indicators, which suggests that there is some sort of modest recovery that's happening there as well. It's not growing as quickly as Spain is, but it's still doing better than Germany and Italy.
1: And what about Eastern and Central Europe? Because they have been or were growing faster right? because they're smaller economies, but they were poorer. So they had some catching up to do.
4: Exactly. They've been converging to the richer Western economies. Collectively, I think they've been growing at about four and a half, five percent a year, which, you know, the big four could only dream of. But if you were to think about the Eurozone as a whole, these economies are still quite small. They still account for about two percent of Eurozone GDP. So when it comes to, for example, the European Central Bank, thinking about monetary policy, the fact that these countries are doing very well probably doesn't have that much weight.
1: Let's turn to sectors that are doing particularly well. You mentioned services. Is that across the board? Finance, tourism?
4: It appears to be retail services that are doing particularly well, wholesale and retail services, which you would expect because they're the least externally oriented of sectors. You know, people tend to buy their groceries and get their haircuts in the places where they live rather than crossing borders to do it.
1: But the external focus must be of concern To the whole Eurozone, the global trade climate, the tensions with America and between America and China, is that still continuing to cast a shadow over?
4: That is very much casting a shadow over. the whole of the eurozone. I think what we've seen in Spain and France in particular, but also in Germany, to some extent, is very strong domestic demand. So that's been driving, you know, uh, buoyancy in retail trade. It's the fact that unemployment has been coming down, incomes are slowly starting to rise, particularly in real terms, because inflation is low. And that's driven households and businesses to spend more. The question is how long that can last as the external environment gets worse. You know, economists thought that this was temporary. It's lasting even longer. The risk remains that America will whack tariffs on European cars. The risk of a disorderly Brexit is looming. All of these things sort of start to raise the question of how much longer unemployment can continue to fall, whether manufacturers might start to um, scale back on jobs and scale back on working hours.
1: So despite the bright spots you were talking about, the overall sentiment is still quite pessimistic.
4: I think that's right. I think the bright spots have prevented Europe from falling into a recession and they've probably meant that growth even in Germany has been more buoyant than one might have expected. The question is how much longer they can, they can last and whether they'll be able to offset the weakness that we're seeing sort of externally and in, in, in the manufacturing sector. And very much the market expectation now is that they'll be further loosening.
1: Ratshina, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And you can read more on Europe's bright spots in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer
0: for 12 issues for $12 or £12.
1: Next, we leave Europe and head to the US to look at the power and influence of big business. You don't have to look too hard on social media to find endless criticism of such firms, be it as soulless corporations that pollute the planet, or big tech turning us into screen addicts, or big banks selling us dodgy mortgages. Can large corporations ever do anything right? One person who believes they can and do is the economist and author Tyler Cowen, who's released his latest book, Big Business, a love letter to an American anti-hero. Samir Keynes, The Economist's U.S. economics editor, spoke to him recently and began by asking him why he wrote the book.
2: I had a sense from my own experience with social media that an anti-business wave was coming. When I started this book several years ago, a lot of people thought I was crazy, or why would you write a book on this, like Who Hates Business?, And now when it comes out, you see, you know, Amazon in New York or Facebook debates or some of the claims Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are making. Donald Trump tweets against CEOs and, you know, gets out the pitchfork. We're living in a new and different world where business is much more of a target. And I think it's time for a book looking calmly and coolly at the actual facts. So this is a love letter speaking up on behalf of American business, which produces things, innovates, Buyers us, gives us jobs, which most of us enjoy. And a lot of the criticisms against big business, oh, that it's all monopoly or it controls the whole government, I show those are really overrated and mostly wrong. If you poll young people, they will commonly say that they favor socialism more than capitalism. I don't think they actually want real socialism, but I see more and more in the media or popular discourse people simply making claims about big business, which are false, And my goal is to rebut those claims by looking at the evidence. So, of course, business is better than communism. Most people would accept that. But this is just, what are the actual facts about big business?
4: What do you think are the legitimate criticisms of big business?
2: Here are some of the worst sectors. So, for-profit higher education has been a significant amount of massive fraud. That would be one example of part of big business that hasn't worked well. Hospital mergers in the United States have led to higher concentration and higher prices, and probably our antitrust authorities have been too lax. If you look at social media, I do think privacy is a legitimate concern. I don't think it's very well understood. The main threats to our privacy are actually the people we know. But nonetheless, I think we should do something to have more privacy. So I don't think big business is necessarily heroic. I think it lies and cheats, roughly at the same rate that ordinary people do when they're not in big business. But that, in my view, is a necessary corrective to the emotional image people have in their minds of big business being uniquely evil. And sometimes big business is more honest. Go to Match.com, the dating site. Who is more likely to lie to you, the company, Match, or the people filling out the profiles? I think it's obvious what the answer is.
0: You could
4: say that big businesses are no worse than the ordinary man on the street, the the friend who tells you that you look amazing in that dress because they're trying to save your feelings. And then I suppose the counter to that might be, well, these big businesses do have such a huge influence over our lives. They do have power. Perhaps it's not abused so much as, as most people think, but they do have power, and therefore shouldn't they be held to a higher standard?
2: Well, I would unpack the word power I think we should have strong and strongly enforced laws against fraud. For instance, in some areas, antitrust may have been too weak. But consumers have power over business. We can ignore them. We can stop spending our money with them. You look at IBM or General Electric, well, what exactly is their power? They still have government as a customer. They lobby government. Maybe that's objectionable. But consumers and users and capital markets are very, very important in the system and businesses have to cater to those interests.
4: What about big businesses' kind of impact on the environment? How do you see the the kind of the race between regulation and, and the impacts of big business there?
2: We need to regulate carbon emissions much more strictly than what we do now and remove subsidies to fossil fuel use. That would be a very difficult struggle. Uh, I would stress carbon emissions come as much from consumers as from businesses. We demand a certain level of consumption. Uh, I think Carbon emissions is an example where business lobbies are partly at fault for not promoting the right policies. Uh, Very few countries in the world have managed to solve this problem. I think we need more government funding of basic science before any actions from corporations will get us there. I'm worried that if we villainize, say, Exxon, done some wrong things in this area, Eventually, they may need to be a partner in helping to solve this problem. And I don't think villainizing the business side of it is a way to actually get us to a cleaner environment. And then I would say, other than carbon emissions, most aspects of our environment, in fact, have been getting better. The incentive of business is to produce things more cheaply with less resource use, This country is being reforested, we have cleaner air and cleaner water, so a lot of the environment has been moving in a positive direction also.
4: What's your diagnosis for why people are so hostile towards big businesses? I think
2: this hostility comes in waves. So right now there's a general disillusionment with a lot of parts of American life. People are more cynical about religion, it seems, some aspects of politics. Big business is caught up in this wave. But I think you also have had genuine problems, the financial crisis, what some people call income inequality, which are real issues, and business gets blamed for those more than it ought to. I think that's another reason. I think possibly social media mobilize a lot of different extreme points of view, maybe some of them quite good, but a lot of them bad. And a lot of the social media attacks on big business might not have happened, say, 10 years ago.
4: Tyler, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure.
1: And finally, let me share a guilty little secret, though one which I'm sure many listeners will sympathise with. When I sign up to stuff, I don't always read the small print. And I seem constantly to be saying yes or accepting terms and conditions every time I install a new programme or app. Well, listeners, we're not alone. A study by the Journal of Legal Studies found that only one or two of every 1,000 retail shoppers buying software read the licence agreement, and even most of them examine only a small part of the text. But how dangerous is our carelessness? And is there anything that can be done about it? To discuss the problem, I'm joined by Philip Coggan, the economist Bartleby columnist. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. Life's just too short, isn't it, Phil? Surely even somebody as meticulous as you doesn't read all the small print.
3: I don't. And one of the reasons is that the small print is often very long. You can be scrolling through vast amounts of pages. And as a consumer, also, you're not a lawyer. So you're not competent to judge whether or not these terms apply rigorously to you or whether it's just you know something you can easily walk away from. And the idea in economics is that Any agreement is a contract between two parties, both of whom freely agree to it. And therefore, uh, no contract can be a bad contract because, you know, you freely agree to it. But that's not the case with many of these things. And the sort of counter argument from economists is, okay, well, not everybody reads it, but a few people do and they will make sure that bad terms don't get imposed. But the study you just quoted shows that isn't the case either. Almost nobody reads the contract in full. So lots of things can be got away with.
1: And is it just my impression or is it actually getting worse, at least in the EU, that since GDPR, the data regulations came in, it seems almost every time I go to a new website, I have to click yes to something and you think, oh, go away, go away.
3: <laughs> yes, uh, I think you're right. I mean, those things are well-intentioned in that, you know, you've got to agree to them collecting a the data on you. But the problem is, as regulations mount, then the amount of terms and conditions apply, expands and expands and expands, makes it more difficult to read. And there was a a study by the Consumer Association, which got people, many of whom were well educated, to try and read the conditions on travel insurance policies and then ask a, a number of questions about them. And virtually nobody got them right or got them all right, because they're often in such complex language, a language, you know, more akin to sort of academia than, you know, the average reading age, that people struggle to understand them.
1: But does it actually matter? I suppose I'm not one of those who thought, well, other people are reading this. But I am one of those who thought, well, if this company was doing something too outrageous, it would be risking hell by social media. That there are now more powerful ways of consumers venting their frustrations with the company than going through
3: complex legal documents. I'm sure you're right about absolutely extreme conditions, but I think it does matter. And one of the studies quoted looks at switching between bank accounts. Now, it's pretty simple to work out what you want on a savings account. You want the maximum interest rate possible. But people are very reluctant to switch, partly because they fear all the terms and conditions. This happens often with utility switching as well, because they're not sure whether it's really going to be a good deal after all. So the study looked at various ways of trying to encourage people to switch. And even when the interest rate was clearly higher... Even when they had maximum disclosure, only 12% of people were willing to switch. And the reason seems to be they were just too intimidated by the whole process. Now, if economics is to work, it should mean that competition works and the best product is sold to the most people. But the amount of legalese and small print means that doesn't necessarily happen because people are not willing to switch because of the hassle in doing so.
1: And is anything being done to sort this out? I mean, it, it, as you say, for economics to work, it needs to be made better. But is there anything being done?
3: Not as far as I know. There's, there's been talk of experiments to show people a video about the the product and how it works, and oh, the, rather, uh, yes, exactly. Rather than read the terms and conditions, but if it, if it could be done in thirty seconds. But the difficulty is, anything that simplifies, the danger is that it excludes stuff. And then you would be in a legal hiding to nothing if you'd excluded the key term condition that people were explaining about. So I think we have to accept and we have quite a lot of monopolies or quasi monopolies in the technology space that we're stuck in a world where there are some powerful companies which have products and the rest of us who are not really competent to judge whether those products are good or not.
1: Phil, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined.